Let's make our way back to our chairs. It is great to be with you guys. Oh, man, what a sweet morning we've had already, just worshiping God. It is so cool to pray, to sing, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I hope your cup is as full as mine is. Uh, for you who don't know, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at the Brook. And uh, man, it's fun. It's fun being a part of this church community. God is doing some beautiful things in our midst, in our community, in our church family. I want to echo what Josh was sharing during announcements. We would love for all of you to be part of a real community. Please, please, please come on through. We know it's scary if you've never been to some stranger's house. You're like, what's going to be like? It feels a little cult-like, you know. It's not a cult. It's a gathering of the saints. We encourage each other. We share meals together. We pray together. We study the Bible together, and we go and engage our neighborhood together. So uh, those of you who are in a real community, do you recommend that for others? All right. Cool. So... Like he said, uh, please talk to us if you got questions. Well, this morning we are going to land the plane on a series we've called The Generous Life. The Generous Life. Next week, I'm starting a new message series. Um, we're going to title it Doctrine That Dances. And it's a title we stole from somewhere else. We'll share about then. But it's on the book of Romans. It's a book by the title. I didn't stay steal it, all right? The book of Romans and the book of Romans is a book in the Bible. It's arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, letter ever written. And in that letter is a beautiful telling of who God is and, and what he calls up from us, his people. I know it's going to be a really insightful and great series. Um, that series is going to take a long time to finish. So we're going to weave in and out of that one over the next year and a half, literally. Um, and then around Easter time, we're going to do a message series from the book of Song of Solomon in the Bible which is a, sto- a, a, a book about relationships, about romance. So it'll apply to, uh, to singles, to marrieds, for those who are trying to figure out life relationally. It is a hands-on book. Most people don't know that book is in the Bible because you read it, you're like, what is this saying? It's super poetic, and uh, yet it's beautiful. And so we're trusting that's going to be great. So that's what's on the, on the docket over the next uh, couple months here. But today we are landing the plane on the generous life. The generous life is a life that God calls us to when we view all of what we have ultimately belonging to God. That's that's what it comes down to. The past three Sundays, we've said this. We've said that we've got to gain a right perspective on money and our possessions and all of what God has entrusted to us. I mentioned it very clearly, and I'll say it again one last time for this series at least. Uh, The Bible talks a lot about money because all of us need it. All of us demand it for aspects of our lives. Some of us have a lot of it. Some of us have a little bit of it. Some of you say, I've got less than a little bit of it, right? (laughs) This is is, is a reality, but we've got bills to pay. we got things to do. we got expenses. And so how do we then view our money in such a way where it doesn't start demanding and and directing our lives? If you're like me, there's times I had to catch myself saying, like, I'm just thinking too much about the bank account. Because you're preoccupied about, did that check hit yet? Did that, did that automated payment go through yet? Uh, when's that direct deposit coming in? Am I the only one doing this? No. All right, don't, don't make me look like I'm by, by myself here, man. Come on. <laughs> and so we, we, this, is a, this is reality. But it's so easy for let, to let that begin to consume you, isn't it? And so how do we gain a right perspective? We've said, well, first of all, remembering that we came in with nothing into this world, and we're leaving with nothing into this world. There is no such thing as a U-Haul following a hearse. Hearses come, 
just with one person inside and nothing else. And you get buried and we go into eternity. We don't bring anything that we've accumulated in this life possession-wise materially with us. We've also said that we've got to understand the motivating factor. So if we get the right perspective, then in that, God says, I want you to be generous. Well, the motivating factor of our generosity is that God himself is a generous God. Consider that. Everything you've got is a gift from God. And to take it a step further, if that weren't enough, he's actually giving you something far greater than anything materially you have, and that actually is his very own son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God gave his son. So that's what motivates us. And then last week, we saw how God's people, when motivated, when drawn into giving, actually give so generously. And there's a story in Exodus where they gave so much that people were like, hey, tell them to stop giving because we got too much. And we're all like, wow, that's craziness, right? But that happened because they longed for more of God, and they knew that the more they give, the more they get to see God at work, the more they they get to see his glory, and the more they get to participate in what he's doing. Today I'm going to tie a bow around it and talk about a response we make, a response that we've got to make when it comes to giving uh, and generosity. I know that I would be an irresponsible pastor if I didn't talk about generosity because This whole matter is like a CAT scan on our hearts. It exposes what's really deep down inside. We've seen that there are warnings in the Bible about letting money consume us, like the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Or as we saw in Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The Bible tells us really clearly money isn't going to make you happy. It may pay your bills, but that ain't going to make you happy. On the flip side, we see this about accumulating money. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, Proverbs 13, 22 says. It encourages us to accumulate wealth. It encourages us to save up our money. And so we hold these things in balance to not live for it, to accumulate it, but then to not let our accumulation of money create greed. Where money exists, greed follows like a shadow, doesn't it? It just always lurks behind. But I want you to know that money coupled with faith produces generosity and God wins. So when you got money coupled with faith, it's going to produce a kind of generosity. Today I'm going to look at the book of Malachi in the Bible. And it's pronounced Malachi, not Malachi. He was Hebrew and not Italian, all right? So meet me in the book of Malachi, page 802 in the blue Bible there in the chair in front of you. Would you stand with me as I read from Malachi chapter 3? I'll read verses 6 through 12 to get the text in front of us and see what God has to say about generosity, the generous life from this passage. Y'all with me? Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, page 802 in the Blue Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please keep that one. We want you to have God's Word. This is what God's Word says to us. And this is, this is a left hook, by the way. I just want to prepare you for it. This is God in the ring, and it's, he's, he's throwing bows here. This is what he says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Amen for that. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you haven't kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 
But you say, how shall we return? God responds, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God responds, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. Can you say put me to the test? Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Can you say need? need? I will rebuke the devourer for you so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then, 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 all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, God, we know that the promise of Scripture says that your word will not return void. And I stand today as your messenger and also as a recipient of this message. And we are all here today, God, saying we want to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would tear down all kinds of distractions, that you would tear down all kinds of guilt that is not from you. God, would you cause guilt that leads to repentance? To take place. God, would you establish joy in this room? God, I pray that all of us, without exception, would have ears to hear you and eyes to see you, and that we would view all of life underneath your lordship, and that we would experience the joy of living sold out for Jesus. Holy Spirit, do your thing, we pray, for your glory. In Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. 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 You may be seated, church. That was a left hook a little bit, wasn't it? It's a beautiful passage, and I want to make sure we understand it. I'm going to give a bit, a bit of a caveat here to start out with, and then I'll get into our passage and return to it at the end here. Something I want to just say, as we've said before, a lot of times when we hear about money in the local church, a lot of us get a bit of a cringing kind of feeling. Because we've heard about the, this, this discussion being abused, we've heard of it being twisted, and we've been guilted into things different times, or we've heard of others done that. And I will tell you, that this passage is the headquarters for abuse when it comes to money in many churches. This passage is ground zero for wrong understanding of generosity according to the Bible. I want to state that straight up. God has never twisted or guilted us into giving. God is not an extortionist. He's not someone who in secret manipulates you into being generous. And there have been others throughout the generations who've used this passage to manipulate people into generosity. That is sinful. So I hope that you in no ways would hear manipulation, but in turn, inspiration to generosity. That you would hear actually the heart of this passage and the heart of God. And you and I would say, Lord, take all that I have. It's yours. The book of Malachi is a, it's a great book. It's actually the very first book of the Bible I ever preached from start to finish. And after I was starting to preach it, I realized, why did I pick this book? Every single chapter, 
almost every verse is a confrontation from God to his people. And I'm like, this is a tough one. The word Malachi actually means my messenger. And Malachi was just that. He was God's messenger. But as God's messenger in this situation, he's not coming with rose-colored glasses. There is no sugar-coated anything here for the better part of the first three and a half chapters. In fact, on the flip side, we see a lot of confrontation. Look at chapter 1. I'm going to scan through the book right quick for you to put this in front of you. Chapter 1, verse 2. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So right off the bat, God's like, look, I've showed you all kinds of love, and you're still wondering, God, do you really love me? Have you showed me your love? Chapter 1, verse 6, God says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? How about Malachi chapter 1, verse 10? It says, Oh, that there were among you, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. The doors of where? The temple. Shut the doors of the temple that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not accept your offering from your hand. God's like, close the doors of the temple. I don't want you to come in and worship me because this isn't worship. That's a rebuke, huh? Look at chapter 2, verse 7. For the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. They were the teachers. They were the ones who shepherded God's people, much like a pastor. They should guard knowledge. And the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way, and you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. God's like, you guys should be feeding God's people, my people, but you're corrupting them. Look at chapter 2, verse 14, the second part of the verse. The Lord, it says, was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What God is exposing then among his people was crooked worship, crooked teaching, and crooked marriages. And as we read this, we're like, this is pretty a, a pretty bad situation. And if you're like me, I kind of often think when I'm reading the Old Testament, and honestly, when I look at my own life, I'm saying, God, then why are you still in the picture? Like, why haven't you just closed the door and say, I'm moving on from you? I mean, you ever felt that way? When you realize and God exposes to you the sin in your own heart, and you're just kind of like, God, why do you even keep on with me? That's how I've felt many a times. And no doubt as we read Malachi, you're thinking like, God, just, just give up on Israel, find yourself a new covenant people, and start from scratch. You're God. You could do it. Why doesn't God do it? Why does God still bother? Well, that leads us to our passage in verse 6. It says, for I, the Lord, what? Do not change. Why does God not give up? Because God doesn't give up. Why doesn't God move on? Because it's not in his character to change on his promises. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
Basically, what he's saying is, look, you guys have done some evil, but I haven't given up on you. Why? Because I am a God who's consistent in my character, and my character says that I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is God's character. Even when his people were as rebellious as they are in the book of Malachi. This word not change, this phrase here, in theology, the short term is immutability of God. He is immutable. Can you say immutable? Immutable. immutable. Some of you people are like, why say immutable if you can just say he doesn't change? Why make a hard word for it? Sometimes we make hard words just to make hard words, right? Other times, these larger kind of theological words convey a deeper truth that one word can convey. In other, word, in other ways, a phrase can't. When we speak of God's character, we say he is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere present. We speak of his omnipotence, which means he's all-powerful. Or his omniscience, which means he's all-wise. His sovereignty, which means he rules over all. We could also speak of other qualities like his love and other aspects, other attributes of God. But many of these attributes, and I don't want to overstate this, but in many ways they hinge on this attribute, and that's the fact that he doesn't change. I need us to understand something. When we tell us, others, that God is a God of love, yes, he is also a God who hates sin and wickedness and loves his people, we can say that Because that's true of who he is and true of who he's always been. Because he doesn't change. You see, God's unchanging nature then always creates space for redemption in our lives. You see, because God doesn't change, there's always opportunity for us to come to him so long as there's breath in our lungs. Because God doesn't change, we can turn back to him when we fall away. Because God doesn't change, he says, his people are not consumed. On the flip side, think about if God did change. If God did change, his promises wouldn't be certain because he might change his mind. If God did change, his mighty acts of old may not be possible today because maybe he lost a step. If God did change, his patience could run out, even with his people. If God did change, his absolute power may not be absolute. If God did change, his love could be exhausted. His forgiveness then is a maybe. Heaven is not certain. Eternal life could be lost if God changed. If God could change, it casts doubt on all others of his attributes. But what Malachi tells us here, and what God makes really clear is, but I don't change. And because I don't change, I don't give up on my promises. And he looks at his people, Israel, and he says, even though you have crooked worship, that you have crooked relationships, you have crooked teaching, I'm not thrown in the towel because I am a God who made some promises to Jacob, to Abraham, and to Isaac. That's why you are not consumed. God is immutable. But in this particular passage, he brings another problem. Other than the worship, the relationship, and the teaching, he's like, but there's another problem I have with you, my people. But I'm telling you, he says, I want you to return to me in verse 7. 
From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So he's telling his people, look, I need you to come back to me. And so for, for some reason, they still don't get it. They still don't understand what they've done. And look what they respond. They say, but you say, how shall we return? Basically, they're not really clear on what God is mad about. This phrase, but you say, shows up eight times in three chapters in this book. It's basically God saying, here's my complaint, but you say, but you respond like this. You you don't see it my way. What really strikes me here is their lack of self-awareness, family. That's actually quite concerning. You and I are oftentimes in this place where God may not be pleased with us, and we have no clue that he's not pleased with us. A lot of times that happens because we want to ignore his voice. Other times we want to assume things are better than they are. And sometimes we just know God's gracious and we assume he'll forgive us. Here, his people did not understand. They say, how shall we return? What, what have we done wrong? What's, what's going on? He said, I need you to return to me. Well, what you've done is you've robbed me, he says. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Well, then they go on to say, but, but how are we robbing you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions. Basically, what God is like, my last complaint here I want to lay before you is this. I'm a God who has been good to you and given you all things, and I have certain commands for you. Among those commands is to give generously back to my work. And he's saying, because you haven't done this, God's like, I'm displeased in your work. I'm displeased in you. He said, you need to come back to me. What you need to do, God is saying, is repent. The word repent means to turn back. It's kind of like the action of a, of a boomerang. When it goes out, boomerangs come back. They return from the location from which they went out. And repentance, God is saying, I need you guys to turn back from the location that you went toward and come back to where you came from. And where you came from was understanding me and, my, and your relationship with me. This is what God wants of his people. But you and I know that this steady drift away from him is really, really subtle and actually quite seductive. Just to drift away from God. Several months ago, I was in, actually last month, I was in Florida and um, I like swimming. I would not consider myself a professional or super experienced swimmer, but I'm a pretty good swimmer. And a friend of mine is a professional kind of swimmer. And he said, hey, Eric, we're out in the ocean. Let's go swim out to the next buoy out there. And it's about a quarter mile away. And of course, I'm doing the math. That's a quarter mile back. That's a half mile swim in the ocean. But I'm like, it's cool. I'm with you, uh, an experienced swimmer. In addition to that, what motivated me was I could see this buoy out there. And so we started swimming, working hard. I'm trying to preserve my energy, just taking my time. And, you know, every maybe 10 strokes or so, I'd look up, and the buoy's over there, and I'm going this way, and I kind of get back. I'm going there, I'm doing the thing, look up, and now the buoy's over here. And I'm realizing this is crazy. And what's happening is the waves are moving me. They're moving me along, even though I'm working, I'm going at the same pace, but the waves are getting me off track. It was subtle. So much so I didn't even realize it was happening until I looked up. 
You see, what Malachi is saying is, look, you know what God's expectation for you is, but you've begun to drift away because you're not looking up at him. You see, when I began to look at the buoy, it re-straightened me out. So what God is doing, he's saying to his people, look, you have drifted away. You've turned aside from following me. I'm saying return back. Put your eyes on me and my expectations and stay on course. Malachi makes it really clear what God expects. He says, return to me. But then I love the subsequent statement there in verse 7. Return to me and what? I will return to you. A lot of times we feel like God is far and God's like, look, I didn't drift. You drifted. When you look, look back and see where I'm at, I didn't, I didn't go anywhere. But at the same time, when we start coming back, God's like, I'm going to meet you there. It's an amazing thing how God does it. Or as James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's that call and response. I thought right away of the story of the prodigal son in the Bible, where this young man takes his father's inheritance early, leaves his household in the protection of his father's umbrella, gives away his money, spends it on material living, lives it up, even starts to spend money on prostitutes, the scripture says, and before you know it, he's broke. He looks around, finally looks up, and he says, I'm eating slop among the pigs. He says, my, my father's servants are better off than me, his son. So what does the prodigal son do? He returns. And what does the father do when he sees his son at a distance? He runs to his son. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The road to returning is the road to repenting. And this is what God has established But what are they repenting from? Well, they're repenting from not being generous. They're repenting from, God wants them to, from not giving to his work. I read one commentator put it this way. He says, our attitude toward and use of our possessions is an indicator of the health of our relationship with God. That's good, isn't it? So basically what Malachi is pointing out and what God is pointing out is this. You say you are in right relationship with me, but the temperature of your relationship is reflected in the generosity of your hand. And that because you are not being generous shows you're not all that close to me. God tells them this. Return to me. They say, how will we return? What's going on? You've been robbing me, God says. Well, how have we robbed you? God says there in verse 8, in your tithes and contributions. God says, you are robbing me. I mean, that's a big statement. Like, how can you steal from God? Just just think about that for a moment. The God who lacks nothing, how can you take from him? See, stealing or robbery is not just taking from someone what is theirs, but it's also withholding from someone what's rightfully theirs. See, the NBA All-Star Game is in Chicago today. And every time there is an all-star game, they have this grand selection of the basketball players. And always, without fail, there are one or two players that everyone looks and saying, they should have been in that all-star game. Chicago, 
has no one in the all-star game because our basketball team's not good. We have one player, though, that could have been, perhaps should have been in it, and right away Chicagoans say he was robbed. But what did they take away from him? Nothing's been taken away from him, but something that perhaps he deserved was withheld from him. God is looking at his people saying, in like manner, you have withheld from me something that's rightfully mine. And so they ask then, well, what is that? And God's like, it's your tithes. It's your offerings. The word tithe literally means tenth. And God has established in his, in his word that his people were to give 10% of all their income, essentially, back to God, the first fruits of their harvest. So basically, when God's people went out to the fields and they brought in during harvest time the first fruits of their field, whether it be wheat or grain or whatever, God said, that fruit is to be given to me and placed in my storehouses. That, that was the expectation. We saw last week contributions were those things that would go above and beyond the 10%. And God's like, you're withholding from me both my tithe and even your free will offerings. You're not giving what you're supposed to give. This is what he tells them. The result of that then in verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. For the sake of time, I won't turn to the passage, but in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God tells his people, look, there are blessings and there are cursings when you follow me or not follow me. He says, the blessings for following me, you'll see the fruit in your land, you'll see blessing on your life. But when you turn from me, the moment you turn from me, you are inviting cursing in your life. When you don't withhold my law, you invite cursing into my life. And what he's saying here is, Malachi's telling people, because of your withholding the tithe and the contribution, you're cursed. Well, how are they being cursed? We see later, I think it's in verse 11, that there's something called the devourer on their land. And most likely, it was locusts. God sent a swarm probably of locusts or some other a crop-eating pestilence to eat up of their fields. And God's like, basically, like, look, you guys are struggling because I sent this on your land. I find this really interesting because when it comes down to it, it appears that there are two reasons why God's people are not giving in this passage. The first reason is they're not trusting God. Perhaps they are wondering, like we often wonder, if I give to God, will I be able to make my own ends meet? But on the second hand, they were not giving because Things were tough at the moment. Financially, there's some hardship here, they were saying, because our fields are getting tore up by the locust. But what God is telling them is, your fields are being tore up because you're not giving. And you're waiting for them to get better in order to give, but the whole reason they're bad is because you're not giving. I don't know if you're following me here, but basically what he's saying is, you're not experiencing my blessing because you're withholding of what's due to me. This is what the problem was. The tithe was brought into the storehouses to care for the Levitical priests, those who were in the service of the Lord, because they did not work the fields, they worked in the house of God. It also was used to give to the poor and those who had need. And God's like, basically, you are not supporting the kingdom work that I'm calling you to do. So you are cursed with a curse. I'm going to get back to that in a moment. What does God tell them? What's their solution. What are they to do? He says in verse 10, bring the full tithe in the storehouse. So what are we supposed to do? He's like, give what I'm asking you to give. 
so that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. I find this remarkable. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God is like, you want to get right with me. Yes, there's a repentance spiritually, but there's also repentance in your action, which means start giving. And he says, thereby put me to the test and watch what I do. I find it's interesting because in the Bible elsewhere, God says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so you're like, so what am I supposed to do here, God, right? Test you or don't test you. Well, there are different ways we could put God to the test. One is we could test his patience. God's like, don't do that. We could test him to doubt his provisions. Or we can test him to prove his worthiness. A couple weeks ago, we went to the auto show here. And it was a pretty amazing experience. We stood in line to go to the Jeep exhibit. And Jeep, what they did was they give you a joyride. They didn't let us drive it, though, unfortunately. But it lets you get into their different Jeeps and Wrang- the Wrangler, the other Jeeps they've got. And they take you through this kind of a, a stations where the Jeep is put to the test. Different kinds of terrain. Rocky terrain, and the Jeep is just going side to side, and you, they're showing off their suspension and the way it's able to move. There's parts where you're going on a decline that is like, like you're looking straight down, and the Jeep is holding up. Basically, they were putting the Jeep to the test, not in order to see if it's really going to hold up, but to prove how it's going to hold up. The test they gave was a kind of test to show off the strength of their Jeep. When God is saying, put me to the test, he's not saying, put me to the test to see if I'm really going to come through or not. He's saying, put me to the test to show off how I'm going to come through. God, like, show off what I can do. Let people see all that I'm able to do by putting me to the test. This is what God wants from his people. And he says, see if I don't open the storehouses of heaven. That may be a reference to rain for the fields, or it might just be a reference to blessing in general. But he says, see if I don't open the storehouses to provide for you so that there's blessing until there is no more what? What does it say? Look in the text. Until there's no more what? In verse 10. Need. Not want. Need. What God is saying is, I will provide for your needs not always for your wants, but always for your needs. See, what happened here is this passage gets twisted in a number of ways. Many times there are people who say, look, give God, give to him, and watch that caddy coming through your garage. (laughs) You you, want to double your income? Well, double your giving. That's That's not here in the text, family. What also is not here in the text, uh, it's here in the text, but it's not in the text of the scripture widely, is the other false teaching that oftentimes accompanies this, and that's if you don't do it, then you will be cursed. The scripture says it here, we just read it, didn't we? You are cursed with a curse because you're not giving your tithe and contribution, God's telling his people Israel. But one thing that's important for us as we read the Bible is to understand the whole of scripture. As I said, God's not an extortionist. He does have a standard. He calls us to walk in that standard. 
But his standard for giving always has been, and even here in Malachi, is generosity. See, in our day and age, the followers of God are not those who can receive a curse. They just can't. Because there was one who took it for us already. You see, what we are told in Scripture is that when Jesus came to this earth, he took the law, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament of the Bible, and not that he eradicated it, but he fulfilled it. So what Jesus did was live this perfect life to fulfill God's law. So that when he went to the cross, he can receive the curses you and I deserve on our behalf. I don't know if you're hearing this, but Galatians says this. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So if we're going to live by the old covenant, by the law, then you're going to live by the curse as well that comes with it. But there's a better way. Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. That's what Jesus has done. So as we read Malachi and this call to generosity, this is what God is telling his people. I want you to be generous even still, but I want you to understand your generosity stems from the fact that your curse has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And God has now freed you to be a part of my work. God has freed you to give generously. Generosity is, is, a, is a free gift that we're giving back to God because it acknowledges our gratitude for all he's given us. It acknowledges his lordship over all that we have. It acknowledges our dependence on his provisions, and it acknowledges and gives our worship to God. When we're generous, this is what we're doing. So as God tells his people here, he tells us is, be generous. Don't withhold what is rightfully mine. I was listening to a sermon by a pastor out in Philadelphia named Eric Mason, a wonderful preacher, and he was talking about this very passage, and he said this. He's like, you know those times in your life where, where you hear the Spirit of God whispering in your ear to, to, hey, go bless that person with 50 bucks, right? And right away we're like, I rebuke you, Satan, for whispering that in my ear, right? I rebuke that, get behind me. But then he made this point. The devil will never tell you to be generous. He'll tell you to buy weed, but he won't tell you to be generous. See, what we're learning here, the generous life is a life of response to God and all his good gifts. It's a, it's a, it's a response to all that God has provided for us, knowing that where there's money, greed's shadow follows, but when there's money... Coupled with faith in this God, generosity flows from it. When God's church is generous, God does remarkable things through it. We have to keep in mind, though, a neglect of kingdom generosity is ultimately a neglect of kingdom priorities. We, we got to know that when we are not generous, a lot of times it's a reflection of our lack of trust in God. When we withhold generosity, it's actually an abuse of God's blessings. I'm I'm, going to take just a couple more minutes here. I know we're a little later than normal, but I'm going to land the plane here in a moment because I want us to put this together then. 
how are then we to live practically, like real specifically, this generous life? I'm going to put a passage here on the screen from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which says the point is this. This is the Apostle Paul in the New Covenant, the New Testament, basically saying this is, this is when it comes down to what God wants of his people. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's keep that, let's keep that there. Whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. There is indeed, though, a principle where God's like, if you, you sow nothing, don't, don't expect God's blessings. You sow little, expect to reap little. If you sow lots, expect to reap lots. But this is an important point. God determines the harvest. God determines how he wants to bless you. Surely he's already given us every spiritual blessing in heaven. Places Ephesians 1. But God is a good God and gracious and loving to his people. And those times when we just experience his joy, that's a blessing. And when we give and we experience that joy, we can say, hey, I... I, I, I sowed this, but I, I'm reaping joy. Or I'm reaping peace right now. Or I'm reaping freedom. I'm reaping the, the, just the delight of following Christ. So how do we begin to practice the generous life? First thing, even according to this passage, is have a plan. Have a plan. He says, Paul says, give as you've decided in your heart. You see that there in the passage? What have you decided? If you just go spontaneously, there's a good chance you're not going to meet the mark that God is calling you to meet. Decide in your heart before God, saying, God, how do you want me to express my generosity and love others and love your church and love your kingdom priorities? The second thing I want to say is this, that 10% is a good principle. I want to make this really clear. It's not a command in the New Covenant. You're not going to find in the New Testament God commanding his people to give 10%. It's just not, it's not the way that, that works, because I think God's desire is something greater than a percentage, but he wants our hearts. He wants all of us. I once had a conversation with a guy who was getting really angry about this. I was kind of new to this discussion. I had not really considered it many years ago before I was a pastor, and, and he was just kind of like, the Bible doesn't teach 10%. We shouldn't be doing this, and getting almost angry about it, and I left thinking like, is it just you don't want to give to God? Like, what, what are you really mad about here? So 10% is a good principle to work toward if, that's, if you're new to giving. Maybe you're like, man, I, I always give a few dollars here and there, but I want, I want to be strategic. When the old covenant, God's like, hey, this is a plan to aim for. And I'll say that's a great plan to aim for. For those of us who are wondering, like, what, how do we give then? In terms of we give a percentage, but how does that work? I would say this. God calls us to give us of his first fruits, doesn't he? And so... The principle we teach is to give before Uncle Sam could take it. Give of your gross and not of your net. Give it first to God. Say, Uncle Sam took it out of my paycheck. I didn't even saw that money. Well, view, view your offering to God in the same way. Ask God, what else do you want me to do generously? Are there others, other, other ways to give God? Thirdly, I'd say reevaluate your spending habits. Just reevaluate where the money's going. A lot of us say we're broke, but we ain't broke. We just got the wrong priorities. 
Someone like, God, I can't, I, I can't give to you, God, like, but we're giving to subscriptions, aren't we? We're, we're, we're giving to Starbucks. We're, we're giving all over the place. And I say, reevaluate. Just get down on your knees. Tax, tax returns are coming, y'all. You're getting your statements. You know how much you made. Put it down. Put your giving statement next to it and say, God, did I honor you? And just ask the question. The answer may be a resounding yes. But there may be a conviction saying, God, I could have done more. And when that experience comes, saying, God, I want to honor you. Don't, don't, don't walk in guilt and shame. Lay, put your head down and say, no, I'm going to return to you and see you return to me. God, I'm going to give you what I've got. I'm not going to walk in guilt and shame. I'm going to be free, but I'm going to give generously. Fourth thing I'd say, prioritize the local church. That might sound self-serving seeing I'm a pastor, but it's not. It's actually, I'm a messenger. I'm a Malachi. See, the Bible says to prioritize the local church because God has, pro- has prioritized the local church. How does the gospel go forward in this era? The church. Who is the head of the church? Jesus. Who is his body? Us. The church is God's program for the now. And so let's be about his kingdom program. Prioritize the local church. And fifthly, I would say, look for God's glory on display through your giving. Sometimes we give and we become resentful, perhaps, or we forget we're doing it because it's automated. I do that a lot. I'm like, oh, that's right, the offering came through. I saw, I saw that thing hit my account. But what happens a lot of times is I'm not looking around. I'm not stopping saying, God, how have you used this? Look for God's glory on display. His glory chases generosity. You see it at work. And how beautiful it is when you know you've blessed somebody and you see them just thrilled because in God because of what you've done. That's worthy of praising. You see, talking about generosity is indeed a CT scan on our hearts. Therefore, we've got to have a plan. 10% is a good principle to aim for or a good starting point to spring from for further. Reevaluate your spending habits. Prioritize the local church and look around to see God's glory on display. Family, the tighter we hold on to money, we've said it, the tighter you hold on to misery. When you, tie, when you hold tightly to heaven, you're going to hold loosely to earth. Generosity is God's anecdote for greed. He himself was the one who gave and gave and gave. Let's take a page out of his book, both figuratively and literally, and say, God, use me. Use me. Before I close, I want to say this. I know this four weeks, we, we didn't cover everything. Maybe you've got questions that are like, okay, some of this is making sense. Uh, I invite you to talk to myself, talk to one of our elders, talk to one of our leaders saying, can you give us more clarity on this? There's a lot in the scriptures about this. I also want to say this. I know some of us are in very difficult places financially. And I just want to say, bring that to the Lord in prayer. And say, God, how can I give wisely? How can I give in a way that honors you? How can I give in such a way that, that, that is just is shrewd, God? I want to honor you. And just listen to what he says. Maybe you bring in some counsel to discern that with you. But I pray that all of us will begin to experience the joy of generosity and be that cheerful giver. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word and that you've given us direction, God. You don't want us to be the kind of people who are miserable pursuing wealth or miserable having wealth. God, we don't have to look very far in our culture. We see 
the lives of many wealthy folks who are just really miserable, God. And, and we don't say that with any bit of glee. We say that with sorrow because ultimately what they long for is you. And for us who have you, let us not long for the things that's making them miserable. God, well, may we pursue you with all we've got. And for those around us, let, let us be the kind of messengers that say, hey, there is one who will satisfy. So, Father, be glorified in us. Use us. Do your thing, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's rise to our feet as we close in this song. And prayer team, would you make yourself available? Um, as always, don't let this opportunity pass you by if you want to be prayed for. Uh, maybe it's related to the sermon. Maybe it's not related. But our, worship, our, our, our prayer team, they're eager to pray for you. I know them. We know what they're, what they're about. So please come forward. Church, let's sing this closing song like we believe it. Well, God, as we prepare to get out and step into the street, step onto the block and head to work and school this week and take on responsibilities, just embrace what's ahead of us. God, we do so in your strength. We do so with your promises, armed with the scriptures, carrying the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. God, we know that there is nothing that can come against us when we are walking with you. So, Lord, protect us from the evil one, and God, give us strength to follow you with all that we have. Lord, I pray that you would be lifted high in our lives, lifted high in this church. Father, we come, we just keep coming to you, thanking you for all that you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me leave you with this blessing from God's word. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you, church. We'll see you downstairs for refreshments.